Our reading from God's Word this morning comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. We'll be reading, if you were with us last week, we'll be reading the exact same section that we read last week together. But don't get nervous, you're not going to receive the exact same sermon that you received last week. No, we were reapproaching this text this morning, and I must admit to you, as I reapproached it again this week, I thought, sure, we don't need another sermon on Acts, on Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 21, and you're, you're saying to yourself, even before I begin sermon 2, no, we do not need another sermon on Exodus 20. But Maybe by the end of this morning's message, you'll, you'll say to yourself, I think we could sit even longer in this amazing text. Let's open up our hearts to God's Word. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to the people, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we 
sit here before your word, knowing that when your word is read, your, your very voice is being spoken. And so, Lord, we've just heard from you. We've heard your voice speak into our hearts and into our lives, and we now come as your people, and we, well, we sit at your feet. It's as if we are at the foot of Mount Sinai. And we're seeing the smoke and the quaking and the lightning and the thunder. And and, and there's something even within us as we read the commands, the clarity of the commands, the the power and the punch that the commands willed, that, that causes us to sort of sit up straight and to be stunned a bit by their impact and to find our hearts in a variety of different ways rearranged by the power of this, your word, we would ask that you would be mindful right now of every single soul that is underneath this word and that you would portion out your grace and revelation, even the illuminating power of this, your word, in exactly the measure needed for each and every heart here. Lord, no sermon can be finely crafted to touch each heart in that way. Only the Spirit of the Lord can do that. No service can be scripted in such a way to to be able to impact powerfully and spiritually every heart. Only the Spirit of the Lord can do that. And so we come dependent on you to speak this word into our lives right now. Would you come and would you speak to us? And would we be forevermore changed? Amen. Amen. Well, you, you heard me joke about a third sermon or threaten. I'm not sure how you heard it. A third sermon on Exodus chapter 20. Well, we, we do have other things to study in the book of Exodus. We will be, by God's grace, should the Lord tarry, we'd be at the end of Exodus 20 next week on what you see if you actually have your Bibles open to the section that's entitled Law is about altars, and then we'll move into chapter 21, laws about slaves. And so, and you're saying to yourself, oh, I thought we were getting out of the commandments. No, no, we're going to be talking about laws and commandments for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And I, I, don't, I don't know exactly how that, that settles on you. Uh, for some of you, maybe you say to yourself, oh, I'm so grateful that we are spending this time. I've never really explored the Ten Commandments and the laws in the Scriptures, especially those related to the, to the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Old Testament, the ceremonial and civil laws that we'll get into next week in the particulars of the theocracy of, of Israel and some of those weird, peculiar laws that we don't really know what to do about. So like, what do we do with laws about slaves when we live at a time where we don't own slaves, right? How do, those, how do those apply to me? What do I do with that? Should I be unsettled that there are laws about slaves, right? And all of those kinds of things are going to come up as we make our way through the book of Exodus, so you have much to look forward to as we're looking at the law together. But I, I want to encourage you. I heard from several of you over the last couple of weeks as we looked Last week at Exodus 20, and then we've been looking on Wednesday nights. Those of you who've been here, and praise the Lord, a lot of you have been here on Wednesday night to hear a slow walk through each of the Ten Commandments, hitting graven images this last week, and taking the name of the Lord our God in vain this upcoming 
Wednesday night. What does that mean? And we'll take a closer look at that coming up. What I've been encouraged about is hearing how many of you already have said to me, you know, I've never heard someone preach on the Ten Commandments before. That's really quite shocking when you think about it. Now, it's possible that you have uh, suppressed in your memory the reality of the fact that you have not heard a sermon on the Ten Commandments. You may have heard them and you have, you have promptly forgotten them. Uh, and that's very, very possible. I'm always humbled when someone comes to me and reminds me of a sermon that I've preached. And I go, I don't ever remember preaching that uh, whatsoever. Um, so again, this is the, the problem of human nature and the issue of our, our memories. But I think it's fair to say that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the law especially in the day and time in which we're in. And we've, we've noticed and even acknowledged last week in the pastoral notes that our forefathers spent a lot of time thinking about the law. And it wasn't because they were just sticking the muds. It was because they understood the spiritual benefit of doing so. And it seems to me that something of that spiritual benefit has been happening in some of your lives. Praise the Lord. I hope for more of that as we uh, enter this morning and in the weeks to come on Wednesday night and in Sunday morning in these many different laws that the Old Testament uh, gives us. But I, I said at the very beginning of our time together, I wonder when you hear the word law, kind of how your heart responds. Does it go in positive ways or does it go in, in, in negative ways? And the, the reason I, I asked that question at the beginning was the, the law, we each have a variety of experiences with this thing called the law. A variety of experiences with regards to this thing called the law. Like there is, some of us have been wrongly and unjustly sued by another person. And we went through the court systems and the laws were upheld and justice was served and we are really thankful for the laws, right? Some of us have had an experience like that where the joy and the peace and the rest that comes with justice is something that really brings our heart a sense of, of great solidarity and of, and of joy in. And then there is injustice for the way in which laws have been used to actually propagate um, immorality and, and evil and, and wickedness. And we think of laws in that way and we respond really negatively uh, to those laws. And so when we ask, what do you think of when you think of the law? It's a complex question. Hopefully, I think probably most of our hearts go, well, I, I feel and think a lot of things. How, how do you mean, Nate, when you ask me? What, what kind of law are we talking about? What, what experience around the law are we referencing? Are you talking about that parking ticket that I got in downtown Franklin? I don't feel good about that, you know. Are we talking about that kind of law? Are we talking about the Ten Commandments, the moral law? And the variety of ups and downs in my own relationship that I've experienced when I read the law. Maybe some of you just a second ago. Some of you experienced some encouragement when you read the law because you were reading it a certain way. And others of you experienced great discouragement when we were reading the law because you were reading it a different way. How is it that you read the law? That's really what I want to explore with you in, in some way, shape, or form together today. In some ways, these last 
This message and last week's messages are a little different from some of the ones that we do here at Cornerstone, only because we've got so much time in the the law over the next few months, we can actually slow down and do a good bit of teaching in the context of preaching through these texts. And, And we've set in Exodus 19, the holiness of the Lord and the importance of the holiness of the Lord for the establishment of the law. We looked at last week, the gracious prologue where God reminds His people that He speaks a word of law to them out of a place of love and grace for them. But then as we read the Ten Commandments today, how do we really understand how they connect with one another and how they interface with our own souls? That's really what we want to explore together today, how the law really should be used. And this is a really important thing to us Americans. Now, It's important if you're not an American here this morning, not, you can't tune out. Right? It's important to those who are non-Americans too, but anyone who lives within the civil government, it's important to how the law is being in used. I was reminded, <laughs> I was reminded this week in reading an article about the fact that it was two years ago this past week that Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, September 18th, I think, 2020. And you might, I don't know if you remember, it wasn't just the happiest of moments in the life of our country. Uh, There was a lot of political turmoil. Of course, that's radically changed since 2020. But there was a lot of political turmoil. There was a lot of racial turmoil. There was a lot of turmoil around COVID-19 happening. There was a lot of turmoil around the presidential election. And as soon as, as Ginsburg's death happened, there was all kinds of pundits, right, and politicians coming out of the woodwork having opinions about whether the then-president Donald Trump should, should go ahead and nominate this nominee or should, should, it, should he wait until November 3rd and, and the potential of a new president uh, coming in. And, and uh, Republicans, interestingly, thought he should go ahead and, and recommend a candidate. And uh, Democrats, you're going to find this really surprising, thought he shouldn't. Uh, and thought he should wait, right? And, and really what we saw was partisan politics, right? We're just seeing parties do what parties do, uh, really, in, the, in that moment. And, um, but we, but well, here's one of the interesting things where Republicans and Democrats actually agreed. So, you know, if you've got your pen and you're taking notes, here's the moment. Uh, here's where they agreed. They agreed that it was important who was nominated. It was very important about who was nominated, Because whoever was nominated was going to swing the Supreme Court in one direction or another, and it meant the way the laws would be used will go either one direction or another. You hear how I'm saying that? The way the laws will be used, the the way they'll be executed, the philosophies and thoughts and ideologies around the law will be differently administered based upon the Supreme Court. And the, and the Supreme Court is very important, right? Some would argue it was more important than the, the, uh, the presidential election because of the impact generationally that a lifelong judge has on the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, you know, is a curious thing. It does not really try cases. It really, what does it do? You're like, I, tell me, I'm not sure. You know, what does the Supreme Court do? It, it interprets the law. And it decides whether the law applies in this circumstance 
or that circumstance, and it tells you how the law can be used and sets precedence for how things might go in the future. It feels really important. It's using the law. It's different than making the law, you understand. So you see, God made the Ten Commandments. And and then you read something like, thou shalt not murder. And then we ask yourselves, if a soldier in combat kills another soldier who's threatening his life, is that murder? How do we understand and thus apply or use Thou shalt not murder. And that, you know where that is? That's where you live every day. (laughs) The complexity of the dynamics of life are played in in those moments. And we could do that with each of the commands. And the question is, what does the law mean? And how should it be used? So in the, you know, five minutes we have left, I, I want to, with that long introduction, I want to explore with you the use and the misuse of the law around the Ten Commandments. The use and the misuse of the law around the Ten Commandments because I I think these categories are critically important for you and I to understand the meaningfulness and the significance of the law and why you might think taking ten weeks on Wednesday night to go through the law is overkill and I hope to convince you is not (laughs) by virtue of the time that we're going to spend together in this word uh, today and, and the reason this struck me, just as a side, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says this about the law, and, and it, it's, a, it's a fascinating statement. He says, the law is good, and then he says this, if you use it lawfully. If you law lawfully misused it, we misunderstand it. Well, let's start with this use of the law, and I, I think, you know, really the... Martin Luther was super helpful here in his treatise on good works. One of the things that that Luther did in his treatise on good works is he treats all of the commandments individually, but he he also pairs two commandments in the the Decalogue, in these Ten Commandments together. And, And the two commandments that he pairs that we're going to do a little case study on this morning is commandment number one and commandment number ten. Uh, you know, some of you, you learn this trick, right? If you read the introduction to a book and you read the ending to a book, you can, you can kind of get the middle a little bit. All right, there's something of that going on in the Ten Commandments. There's something of that actually. That sort of envelope structure of the Ten Commandments really does help you sort of understand the whole of the commandments. And, and Luther saw this, I think, really clearly that that commandment number one is first because it's first. It's, pri- it's primary. It's preeminent. And, and the way that Luther argued that is he said, whenever you break any of the other commandments, all of, any of the other nine commandments, you always break the first commandment in breaking the other nine commandments. You, you always break the first commandment in breaking any of the other nine, nine commandments. And, and, and case in point, when you steal, okay, when you break commandment number, number seven, you've also broken commandment number one. Because within your heart, you have desired something more than God. 
You've longed for something more than God. You've thought that if I can get this thing, it will make me happy. And I'm willing to break commandment number seven. But in my heart, it's because I've gained reigning supremacy to the desire of my heart, which means that God's not on the throne of my heart, which means that God is not named above all gods in your soul. And we could do that with every one of the commands. It would be a great case study to come on Wednesday night. Have I given enough plugs for Wednesday night yet? If you come on Wednesday night, we will, we will do that sort of things together. Now, what I, what I love about Luther acknowledging that is that he, he also states it positively. And, and he says, not only do you break the first commandment when you break any of the other nine commandments, but, but the first commandment also has a positive implication. Okay, the, the, the negative, thou shalt not have any other gods before me, also means by implication that we should fear, love, and trust God more than anything else in the world. That's what it means. That's the positive implication. If you were here last week, we said that the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, encompasses the first four commands of Exodus 20. And love your neighbor as yourself encompasses the final six commands of Exodus chapter 20. It addresses the two tables of the law. When Luther says, fear, love, and trust God above everything else in the world, he's getting at what it would mean to hold precious and true and abide by the first commandment with the whole of our being. And he says, only then will you not, only then will you be sure that you have kept commandment number one if you have feared loved and trusted the Lord above all things. Now, let me take those words because I think that's really important. I want to take fear, love, and trust and I want to run it through commandment number four for you because I think it's one of the commandments we really struggle with. Fearing God above all the world, what does that look like? Well, if we're going to take commandment one and we're going to apply it to commandment four, and we say we must fear God above everything else in the world. That means not be afraid, but it means to have reverence, to have awe. To, we might even put it positively, to honor God above everything else in the world. If that, if that command means that, then that means you've got to honor the Lord. You've got to fear the Lord more than your boss, more than the local magistrate. Right? Right? More than, your, more than your headmaster or principal. You've got, to, you've got to fear God above all of those uh, other things. And if you don't, what happens is, in a moment of crisis or dilemma, you'll choose boss against God. Let me show you how that works with commandment number four. Some of you know the struggle of a boss who demands that you work on the Sabbath day. Right? Some of you live under the struggle of how to, to balance commandment number four with a structure of employment where the anticipated reality of your existence is that you will work on, on the Lord's day. Now, the Bible gives some provisions for work on, on the Lord's day. It refers to things like charity and necessity. So, for instance, if you run into Nate, which... 
it's very possible, you know, my car seems to go into the shop every other day right now. So, but if you were to see me this morning on the side of the road and like I had not made it to church and, and you passed by and you were like, I think that's Nate, like, like there, and you pulled over and you gave me a ride, you would be doing me an act of charity. That would be permissible. Okay, to do on the Lord's Day. That, that I could even call you and ask you to work for me in that way. And, and you, that would be legit. Like, that would be okay. It's an act of charity and of necessity. Um, and, uh, and, and so that, that would be one way to utilize it. But that's not the kind of work we're talking about here. We're talking about work. It's not emergency. It's not charity. It's not, it's not necessity. It's just that the typical fare of expectation is that you're going to work on the Lord's Day. And you decide over and over and over to obey your boss rather than God. What's going on there? Now, some of you are like, well, I'm not totally sure if commandment number four is still a really legit command. We'll get there on Wednesday night. Come on Wednesday night, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Let's for a moment be- believe that the Ten Commandments are actually ten still, and not, not nine. And, and that God requires that of you. You know what that means? It means that you fear your boss more than God. It means that you honor your boss more than God. You should feel something there. If you're, if you're tracking with me. That means that very often we're struggling with idolatry. Right? Now, what would it mean to love God more than anything else in the world? That's to fear, right? Well, let's, let's say that you have a job and your, your boss, he's a great boss. He doesn't require you to work right on the Lord's Day. But you love money. And so, though you're free not to work on the Lord's Day, you do. Because you want money. You love money. You love, you love, let's go, let's go deeper. You just love getting stuff done. And you love the feeling of getting stuff done. I, you know, we worked on our garage again to clean it out this week. And when I saw the floor of the garage, it wasn't quite that bad, but it felt good. Some of us like love the feeling of accomplishment. And, and so because we love the feeling of accomplishment, or we love money, or we love something more than God, we, we work on the Lord's Day. And we honor money and love money more than we love God. Now, now let's, let's think of this in terms of, of, of trust, right? Isn't that the way you put it? Fear, love, and and trust. Let's again go back to the fourth commandment. Let's say your boss doesn't require you to work, but you look at your week ahead. Oh my goodness. Do you sometimes do this on Sunday afternoons? Are you guilty as me on Sunday afternoons, Sunday evenings? You kind of look at your week ahead and you just, it's like so much to do. And you know where, where, where I'm tempted in those moments is because there's so much to do, I need to get a head start on something, <laughs> right? 
I need to get a head start. If I don't start getting stuff done, I'm not going to be able to get done all the things that I need to get done this week. That's the, that's the felt experience. We might even say in our mind, right? We might say, I have to work. I, I'm going to have to work on, on Sunday because I'm not going to be able to get, get this done. So, and we say that in our minds because then it doesn't even feel like we're choosing it. Then it feels like it's just the inevitability of living in a fallen world. I've got to, I've got to work today. But you know what you're actually saying? You're saying you, you trust your own efforts and your own energies more than the promise of God's rest to help you get, be more productive and more efficient in the six days he's given you to labor. Do you see how important the commands are? Do you see why traditionally the Christian church has spent a long time on the commands? Because like you're thinking to yourself right now, I'm feeling really uncomfortable. It's instructing me in the nature of how the commands actually work. That each time I'm looking at this commandment number four, I'm actually breaking commandment number one. And in some of these cases, I'm also breaking commandment number seven because I'm stealing from God's time rather than... Than, than the time that he's allotted to me. And maybe in other ways I'm committing spiritual adultery, commandment number six. And all of a sudden you begin to realize like to break one of the commandments, the apostle Paul said, is to break them all. <laughs> right? You start to realize like, oh no, like I'm sunk. I thought I'd done good on the murder one, but then I got angry. Right? And you begin to realize the depth of the law that's here. This is how we use the law. Right, the, the law kind of leads us to this. Now, this is why for, for Luther, he paired the first commandment with the tenth commandment because the tenth commandment is super unusual, right? I mean, it's super unusual. Like the whole thing has been like, you know, don't have any other gods before me, no, no graven images, take the name of the Lord your God, murder, you know, honor father and mother, all, all these things. All of those commands are commands that if you watched someone over the course of their life, you could have empirical evidence for whether they're keeping them or not. You know, like, there's, there's things we'd have to do with our words and our bodies and our actions that would lead us to say, oh, they're keeping the commands or not. And then the last command is, thou shalt not covet. And you think to yourself, wasn't expecting that one. I didn't expect that to be number 10. In fact, it's a weird ending. Does it feel a little anticlimactic to you? You know, you're like, murder and adultery and thou shalt not covet. You're like, how did that get in here? Well, in the wisdom of the Lord's structure of the Ten Commandments, you know what he's doing? He's causing you to get to commandment 10. And all of a sudden, he's awakening you to the fact that these commands are not merely about external behavior. That every one of the commands is about what's going on inside of you. And the best way to get at what's inside of you is for you to think about the longings and desires of your heart. And that's where coveting comes in. Right? That's where coveting comes in. It drives you the heart. And the way Luther, I think, appropriately put it is he said immediately when you get to commandment 10, you're supposed to go back through the commandments, back to commandment 1, and to realize that to break the first commandment, requires that you long for something inside of you more than God. That it's more than just like you on Sunday morning and me on Sunday morning, hey, you made it to church this morning, you know, yay, yay for you. You have made a formal decision to worship God rather than other idols. 
Therefore, you have kept commandment one. I wish it were that simple. When you get to commandment 10 and you bring it back into relationship with commandment one, you realize, oh, this has to do with how much I love everything else in life more than God. Not just about the fact that I made a formal decision about coming to church on Sunday morning. Other things in life were more important than the things that God had commanded you to do. Now that's really important. Now, we see this, right, in the catalyzation of the law, right? In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve commit the very first sin, and they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How, how did they actually get there? Well, before they disobeyed the Lord, what did they do? They coveted, right? Eve desired, we said. She, she actually judged the food and desired it and said that it was good for food. And was able to make one wise. She judged it and desired it. And you know what she did? She trusted the serpent over and against God. See how she committed idolatry? She decided to follow him. It's the same thing that Cain did in Genesis chapter 4. Right behind Cain's anger, what's his problem? He covets. He wishes he had the approval that his brother got from the Lord. He hates that his brother's sacrifice was accepted and his was not. And he hated his brother so much that what? He gave birth to murder. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 5. In, in the brilliant design of the Ten Commandments, I want you to see how commandment one and commandment two drive us to the reality of both the whole of our actions and words and everything that we do and the desires and the motivations of our heart are meant to be brought into the closest possible relationship to the law of the Lord. Which is why the Apostle Paul can say this in Colossians chapter 3. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. There's commandment number 10. And then he says, covetousness, which is idolatry. Commandment number 1. See, the Apostle Paul got it. He understood that by Go, driving to the heart of commandment number 10, we're going back to the commandment number 1, and we're actually touching on all of the commandments. And what that would mean is not that you just don't have an idol before the Lord, but that if you're going to keep commandment 1 and commandment 10 and all of the commandments, if you've got to find all of your contentment, all of your satisfaction in God alone. Now, I think it's at that point where we realize, like, so this keeping of the law thing is not really in the cards for me fully, is it? Exactly. Now, if you, if you are drawing that conclusion all of a sudden and it feels like your life then, or even Christianity, maybe it even feels like the faith is a bit of a sham, if all of a sudden you realize that the commands you've been so hard trying to keep and just to please God, and just to even... Even this, and this is even more deceptive, even to feel like you're pleasing God, even you would feel like you're a really good person. If you've been motivated and driven to the commands in that way, and this is really registering home to you, you should feel like your whole life collapsing. And if you feel that, I want you to know your whole life is not collapsing. That actually you're experiencing the use of the law, the purpose of the law, do you see, here's where the misuses of the law come in. You see how we're using the law here to get to our own hearts? It's going to lead us somewhere. Hold on. 
the misuse of the law is this. We sometimes look to the law to prove our acceptability to the Lord. To prove our acceptability to ourselves and to others. Which is why we're so stressed out and joyless when it comes to the law. The Bible is a word for that. It's called legalism. Pharisees are super good at it. And what, it, what that actually means is you had deceived yourself into thinking that you could actually perfectly keep the law. And as you compared yourself with others, you thought, I'm a pretty good person. And you basically walked through life with that general assessment. And if this is really registering to you, you're like, I can no longer hold to that myth. And what I want you to know is what you're not losing is the grace of the law. You're losing the legalism that you held around the law. That's what's being deconstructed right now. The law is good if you use it lawfully. If you understand how it's to be used. Was the law ever intended to make you acceptable to the Lord? Make you feel good about yourself? So that you could compare yourself to other people and feel like you're in a pretty good pecking order? Was that what the law was given for? That's a misuse of the law. Which is why our lives are so filled with harried, anxious, hectic, pecking order, feeling lives. Because we are actually, in our quote-unquote loving of the law, we're actually just little legalists. And it's in moments like this where we actually have the the possibility to re-enter into the real uses of the law. The, the other misuse of the law that sometimes comes our way is, is well, it's not the legalistic struggle. It's the, it's the what we would call, I mean, here's the, the theological word, is antinomianism, right? There'll be a, a test on this later. Say antinomianism ten times fast, right? Nomos, it's the word law in the Greek. Anti-nomos, anti-law. Anti-law. The law, the law is not important anymore. Some of us have actually grown up in circles where that's been taught. That the moral law is, is, is no longer you know, serviceable. You know, Paul said that we're, not, that we're dead to the law. right? Paul said that we um, are now not under law but under grace. So we don't, have to, we don't have to keep the law anymore. Wrong. Wrong. You've misunderstood that. It's okay, we'll talk about it next week a little bit more. Remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 5? Do you remember what we read a little earlier in the passage when he said, I came not to what? Abolish the law. <laughs> right? It's still around. It's still in effect. I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In fact, and this is why I want to challenge you on commandment number 4. He says, not, the, not a jot nor a tittle. For those of you who grew up in the KJV, you remember those? Jot nor tittle, right? No, neither the dot or the least stroke of the Hebrew alphabet will pass away from the law. Just so we're clear. He says, all of it will remain binding until all has been accomplished. Right? And, and one of the ways that we fall into antinomianism, and I'll just tell you, I think super guilty in this, is we start to reduce or truncate the meaningfulness and significance of the law so that we can get out from under its guilt. You know, it doesn't really mean that. 
You know, well, so-and-so does it worse than me. I think, I think this is okay. I think in the, in the scope of things, I'm probably pretty good when it comes to this, this law. And we're actually being anti-law when we do that. Because we actually won't let the law do its work. We're pushing against it. Why do we push against it? We don't like the conviction. We don't like what it means. And you know why? We do not understand where it's leading us. We do not understand where it's leading us. Where is the law leading you? Paul in Galatians chapter 3 tells us that the law is a schoolmaster. Could, could be translated a tutor. What does a, tu- what does a tutor do? It comes alongside you and it instructs you. And, and a tutor especially, or a schoolmaster especially, tries to help you understand something you don't quite get. And it says the law does that if you, if you let it be used in your life. If you, if you use it lawfully. It, 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 you, it grows you up as a schoolmaster, and this is what it says, that leads you to Christ. Leads you to Christ. Why would the law do that? You see, so often we say, it's either grace or it's law. You've completely, you've divided two things that the scripture is not divided. This is why last week we entitled the sermon, The Grace of Law, right? (laughs) This week, it's the law of grace. What is the law doing? It is driving you to the one lawkeeper. It is meant to wear you out. If you feel like it's wearing you out, praise the Lord. God's Word is at work. It's doing exactly what it is it's supposed to do. It is supposed to take you to the Lord Jesus Christ. And for you to be able to see that Christ has fulfilled in total the commands on your behalf. Because we already know the secret is out. You can't do them. Why have you held on to that myth? Why even believers in here have you fallen back into that myth? You see, that's why Paul writes Galatians. And he says to them, Who has bewitched you? That's the language he uses. Who has bewitched you to think that you started in grace and you'll somehow perfect yourself in the law? How did, you, how did you like, okay, I got grace to be saved, but the rest of it's up to me. Where did, you, where did you get this? Well, that's the old flesh coming back. He who has begun a good work in you will leave it to you to bring it to completion. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. It's the same person. The same grace that was given to you at the foundation of your faith is the same grace that sanctifies you under the glorification of the day in which you will stare your beautiful Savior in the face. And when you come to the law and you allow the law to do this really fundamental work in your soul, you know what begins to happen? You begin to see so much more sin in your life than you have ever seen before. When I went through that painful exercise of walking you through the fourth commandment a second ago, did it not bother you big time? 
I just want you to know it bothered this preacher. It bothered him in preparation. It bothered him in preaching. He's got work to do here. But you know, as I've worked my way through the conviction of that, and it led me to Christ, the perfect Sabbath keeper, I begin to realize no condemnation for me over my failures. That the righteousness of Jesus is mine. The perfect law keeper, the perfect Sabbath keeper's record is mine. And in the love and the fulfillment and the completion of Christ's work for me, and paying for all of my Sabbath breaking, and fully upholding all of Sabbath keeping on my behalf, I can now look at that law and not be condemned, but can look at that law with praise and rejoicing and know that it's a portrait of what Jesus has done for me. It's a portrait of what Jesus has done for me. This is why the psalmist can say, I delight in your law. It undid me, and then it showed me who you were and the grace that you have poured out into my life and heart. And now by your grace, I want to keep the Sabbath because I want to follow the Sabbath keeper. And I see that he has taken the yoke and burden off my load. My load is now easy and light because my burden has been cast upon him. And now I love your law. It would be my prayer that we as a congregation would increasingly know the experience of walking in the joy of the grace of law and walking in the law of God's glorious grace. And maybe for some of us today, it's the beginning of a whole new journey. Father in heaven, I pray indeed, would you press these truths into our hearts today, weak as we are to understand them and to embrace them. Would you fill in all of the cracks of our heart with your goodness and your grace and your word? And would we find ourselves built up, first unbuilt and then built up, in the perfect image of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, hear that prayer and answer it. In Christ's name, amen.